Wow, that was weird. It was weird. So, so I, you, you tried to call me. Well, first you tried to call me, I think. And then I couldn't hear anything. Okay. And and I, I will tell you why in a second. <laughs> and then and so I hung up. And then and I then, tried to call you because I thought somehow I had accidentally not uh, uh, answered the phone call correctly, and you didn't answer me. Oh my gosh! Ah, that's CNN that's playing in the background. That's, that's not, uh, no. I, I think we're violating a whole bunch of copyright rules. Oh, that's weird. Uh, I thought it sounded. I thought it was me talking like uh, on tape delay. Oh, it wasn't. It was a press conference in Chicago. Um, so, <laughs> so this is what happened, why, and why you just heard CNN. So, I, I like to work in my office with my AirPods on, and I like to have sometimes a little bit of news, a uh, little fake news, a little real news, whatever, whatever the news you you want uh, in the background. And uh, so I was doing that, and then I was making some coffee, and I was listening, and then my computer got really confused because it had AirPods and it had the Rode Podcaster, and it could hear from some things, and it was talking from some things, and so I like then um, couldn't hear you, so I, I hung up and then recalled you. And then when I put my AirPods away, uh, it kept playing uh, CNN, but over my display uh, audio. Yeah, you know, uh, this is interesting. So I was just listening to an episode of the talk show, uh, and Gruber was interviewing uh, a guy who, no joke, his name is Rich Mogul, um, uh, and he is neither rich nor a mogul. I mean, he's a rich, but he's not rich, and he's not a mogul, uh, but he's a security expert, and they spent a lot of time talking about um, whether you should cover the camera um, on your computer, um, and then yeah. also, but this is what made me think of it, audio, like you, like sometimes on your computer, if, if someone's looking at you, the light will be lit up, yeah. um, but um, but there's no light for the microphone. Um, so what some people do is they put tape over the microphone. And and Gruber's point was <laughs> that doesn't be- work. <laughs> 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 that it, if you want to disable it, you really should plug maybe a dummy microphone into the microphone port. But obviously, I mean, you know, these days there are many ways that we can we can get audio. So anyway, oh well, that's, so nice uh, nice segue, and you didn't even know that you were doing this. But um, a couple of or, ago, or don't I or do or maybe you do because you've been listening to me. <laughs> so uh, a couple nights ago, I, um, you know, as as my kid gets a little bit older, he, he gets um, uh, is allowed to be at home sort of by himself in the transition of like us going somewhere to pick up the other kid or, or do whatever. Um, and so one of the Wait, ways this is, your, this is the, your older son. My older son, the one yeah. that doesn't see cars, correct? Correct, doesn't see cars at all. Uh, he can't see dead people, cannot see cars. Uh, so he, uh, so the way that we that we kind of manage this is with with technology, where I'll like FaceTime them four or five times. You know, my parents used to call me, make sure everything was right. Now I can actually see things. So I'll you know I'll be leaving. I'll be like, Mom's gonna be there in ten minutes. Um, you know, just. Just you know, just hang out. You have FaceTime. If anything happens, give me a call. I can be right back. You know, whatever. Or I'll go for a run in the neighborhood, and um, you know, I won't be right at home, but but he can he can call me and we can talk through something. Like if he decides he's going to make popcorn and sets our house on fire, I'll be like, and he FaceTimes me. I'll say, you should get out of the house and FaceTime yeah, me from outside. Exactly. <laughs> right. So so. Um, he has a, he has an iPad that, that we use for primarily face, FaceTiming. 
And, um, well, he doesn't use it. He uses it playing Fortnite, but, but he and I <laughs> primarily FaceTime on that, on this iPad. And so he takes, he takes it to school with them. That's a, he's at a school where they encourage you to bring your own device and there are certain things you can do. So he leaves it in his backpack sometimes. So a couple of days ago I left, um, was trying to call him on FaceTime, forgot to remind him that his, you know, to go get his, his iPad. And so I thought about an episode of Dubai Friday at, um, uh, where the challenge was to drop in on somebody using the Amazon Alexa app. And so you're not a, you're, you, you don't have a, um, a, a, an Alexa in a box. Do you? No, you we, we are, we are an, and we are an Amazon free household. Although apparently that's not true anymore because Amazon bought Eero, but that's a separate discussion. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so we, we have, we have many of these items. Um, and, and we, it's our like primary music listening device. Um, in fact, I, I bought, uh, my, my parents gave me some, uh, Amazon gift cards for uh, Christmas this year. And my only purchase was to purchase a Amazon echo subwoofer to make the music sound better. Anyway, that's, that's how we, we manage music, but 90% of it, the other 10% of the time that we use our, um, Amazon, uh, echo box is, uh, by setting a timer, like when we're cooking. So I didn't, I've never used this function of drop in. Um, and as I was, as I was out, I like looked and tried to figure out how to use it. And so this was the creepiest thing. So the drop in function allows you to literally listen without any notification or if there may be like a little ding or something, we, I, I, I wasn't there, but Jack was watching like YouTube videos or Bob's burgers or something. And I dropped in on the echo in the room where I knew he was. And, and I just like spent 15 or 20 seconds just listening. And then I was like, Jack, Jack. And he was like, what, who, what, where, I thought you left. Where are you? And I'm like, I'm talking to you from the Alexa, go get your iPad. Cause I'm trying to call FaceTime, you. but it was oh, creepy. Oh, that's fantastic. It was, it was pretty awesome. And then I did it again. So he didn't tell his brother that I had done this. And then I dropped in again when Sam was home later on and it totally freaked Sam out. He's like, cause <laughs> he that I was out and he's like, where, where are you? I'm like, I'm in the room. He's like, no, you're not. He's, and then Jack's like, he's talking from Alexa. So <laughs> that's great. It is. Yeah. It's, so the it's um, fascinating, the, but creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And so we will, we, so we will definitely link to that episode of the talk show, uh, which is actually, it's really, it's really good because it's all about, so rich, rich mogul mogul is a security expert and they talk all, all about a whole bunch of things. They talk about the, um, uh, Bezos, uh, exposes Pecker saga. Okay. They talk yeah. about, uh, laptop webcams. They talk about so many things. So it's good stuff. And then we will also link to, uh, the Dubai Friday episode entitled Alexa, stop. <laughs> Alexa, Alexa, stop. And, uh, uh um, uh, real time follow up. Uh, maybe we'll link to the tweet that I can find from like, you know, a, a thousand tweets ago where I was in a coffee shop and heard a dad say, Alexa, stop to his, his daughter, daughter Alexa, <laughs> uh, which made me laugh really, really hard. And then I tweeted at, at Berlin and he liked it. Um, oh, so yeah, good stuff. uh, it is. It is. Uh, but anyway, it's creepy. Like so. Like just you know, circling back. It is kind of creepy, right? Like I never mm. really thought about how 
how um, powerful that listening in function was until I did it on my own child. Yeah. And I was like, I could just sit there and listen to whatever he was he was doing. And and I, you know, because I'm the owner of the Amazon Alexa network on my on my app. Like I I set it up. So it's it, so I can sort of pick echo to echo which one I want to listen to and then drop in on. I think that there's an ability that I could open that option up to people in my contact list too, which if I did that, um, mistakenly now anybody can listen to what's happening in my house. Um, and so I tell you, it's creepy. It's not going to change what I, what I do. Um, I, I really have never gotten to a point that I'm worried about my, my privacy in that way, but I, I maybe just haven't been exposed to why it's, why it's bad. Um, enough, you know, if I was talking about, um, medical issues and then that information gets archived and tagged by Amazon and then it's sent to my insurance provider. And then all of a sudden my, my insurance premiums go up, that would be bad. That would not be good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if any of this, uh, if any of this is interesting to you, you should definitely check out the, uh, that, that talk show episode. Cause like, I, I, you know, it's one of those things where I have, I've recently, I'm overwhelmed in terms of, um, podcasts and I've gotten behind on some ones that I used to consider myself a regular listener of, but, but I'm glad I make made time for, for that particular one. Cause I think it's just some really interesting stuff. And I thought, I thought you were going to say, we well, talking about FaceTiming with your son. I thought you were going to talk about that, that FaceTime issue with a group FaceTime oh, um, yeah. that was in the news recently. But again, we won't, this is not a tech show. This is a food safety not show. Yet. Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> accidental. Oh, we could call it accidental tech podcast, but wait, that's already a show. Oh man, you're right. Okay. Damn it. Let's call it like planned food safety talk podcast. All right. Uh, or, or something like that. Um, yeah. So we, um, for the for the uh, ra- um, the uh, listeners out there who listen to us all the time, know that this is like two episodes that are fairly close close by. And if you listen to our little after dark, you'd you'd hear that um, Don and I are both uh, going to be away next week, so we're we're recording two weeks in a row. So I don't have anything to share with you on like things that are going on in my in my life. Um, or, well, I have one thing, uh, but I don't have to, like, here are the things I'm watching or listening to because I told you all that last week and nothing has changed. Well, um, did I, did we, last week, did we talk about the tunnel? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. So let's talk, so let's talk about what I'm watching. What we're watching is something called the tunnel. Okay. Um, this is a, uh, the setup is that there's a, there's a tunnel between England and France. I do it. I see that. Let me just stop you. Okay. I see the picture of the tunnel and I'm going to describe it. No, no, it, no, no spoilers. No spoilers. No, it is. I'm not talking about the tunnel itself. Oh. It's just the two main characters. And I will, there's someone looking almost certainly British. Who knows? Maybe Northern Irish. Yeah. Um, individuals that are, that are looking, there's not a, <laughs> they're just looking straight at the camera. They could be, um, it, it could be any other detective series that you've talked about. <laughs> it looks the exact same, <laughs> except there's a tunnel behind them, well, not a, a, a British moor. Yes. Or, <laughs> uh. 
Okay, go, go. I don't, so, I, love, I love this bit. Right. So, <laughs> so, so there's, uh, so we have, we are almost, we are one episode shy of finishing the first season. And, and basically it's set uh, essentially in Folkestone, which must be the English side of the tunnel and Calais, which is the French t- side of the tunnel. And it's detectives are Carl Roebuck, who's the gentleman in the photo, uh, and Elise Wasserman, um, who's the, the lady in the photo. She's a French detective. He's an English detective. And um, uh, it's, it's, they, and, what, and the way it starts is they find a body in the tunnel, and the body is right on the dividing line between the two countries. Got it, got okay? it. Okay, and, and there is an additional spoiler, which you learn about two minutes in, which I will not reveal, because it, when it happens, it's, it's quite um, startling. So, um, so anyway, so, so it's worth checking out. It's very intense. Um, it's getting progressively intense the further it goes along, and it's basically, it's a 10-episode uh, series and uh, it's all one case and it's 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 pretty it's pretty darn good so I, well, highly recommend it. So okay, so the tunnel I I didn't think about it until we started looking at it. Um, it, it so you you may know that it is based on a Danish show called The Bridge. Well, it, yeah, yes, we my, my wife my wife and I have talked about this that and and I think there's another show yeah. that's also sort of based on the same premise. Yeah. Called The Bridge. Oh, that's okay. Amer- that's yep. American. That's American, right. That it is I think it's on HBO oh. or Showtime or AMC and some one of those. And the American one is like The Bridge between the US and Mexico, right? Right. Yeah, I think yeah. it's El Paso. Yeah. We I started yeah. watching like it's the first uh first couple of episodes and also I would the way that you described the tunnel was the way that I kind of saw the bridge, which was it is – I don't know if there was like – I can't remember if there was like a shocking spoiler, but I watched the first couple episodes and it was really intense. And then then we just didn't watch it anymore. And it was a while ago. It was back in – that one came out in 2014. But I will – maybe I'll get into um, the, uh, the the tunnel as well because it's, it's, it's got my favorite thing. It's uh, two people just looking at a, at a camera in a, with a backdrop. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's, it's intense. Like we binged like we binged like three episodes one night and then three episodes the next night. And then after that, um, Kristen said, you know, this is getting too intense. I can't do, I can't do more than one episode. I need a break. <laughs> so yeah. Awesome. So it's, it's really, yeah, it's, it's I highly recommended. So cool, cool, cool. All right. So I'm watching all the same things. Um, uh, Shit's Creek, which is S C H I T T, not um, not the curse word that would give us a an explicit tag. Oh, so I have a, I have a, I have a sh- I have a Shit's Creek update for you. Did I tell you that we started watching it? No. So tell me about it. Did you like it? So it is it is not for us, and by not for us, I mean not not for my wife because what she like she does not like awkward like like she could not watch the British Office because it is just too much awkward. About the limit of our awkward, apparently, is the, um, you know, mockumentary, um, who's the guy? Uh, yeah, Christopher Guest. Yeah, Christopher Guest yeah, mockumentary. Uh, best That's in about, show. Yeah. yeah, Best in Show. That's about the limit of awkwardness that she can handle. And, and Schitt's Creek is just, it's just too, too awkward. Uh, the humor is just based on that awkward uncomfortableness, which she does not like. So, so anyway, so I enjoyed it, but, um, yeah, not, not for us. And by not for us, I mean not for her. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, I, I could see that too, because it also fits, um, something that we have talked about that, um, that Kristen, uh, finds uh, difficult to watch, which is you kind of have like bad people that are the heroes. Yeah. 
in this. Like they're just, it's awkward, but also they're not, they're kind of terrible. Um, and they are the, the main characters and, and you feel for them. Um, and so, yeah. Or, I, or you don't, <laughs> or you don't, or you don't, I do, I do. Um, also my, my parents don't listen to the podcast, but Catherine O'Hara's, um, uh, she's, character. She's great. Yes. Yeah. Moira Rose reminds me of my mom sometimes. Oh, hmm. yeah. And so, so hopefully uh, I, whatever, I won't even go into details. My mom's not a terrible person, but there are certain ways, there's certain ways that she says things is, is yeah. very like, a oh, can, there's a Canadian yeah. accent and oh. just a, a word of like, there, there are words where, where there's appropriation of British terms as, with a with a very thick Canadian yeah, accent, yeah. which my mom does all the time. Right. Oh, cool. Like, like my mom's always going to the loo. Mm. Um, and, and I don't know. Maybe she needs. Maybe she has a bladder issue. I don't know. But it is. Uh, she she's always like. And and so we'll go out for like lunch in a in a barbecue place in North Carolina. My mom will ask. Like she'll go up and say, well, where's, where's the Lou? And, and that does not really translate well to, uh, to the South. Um, mm-hmm. and you, I tell you this because you, you watched a lot of British TV and you know that the Lou means the restroom. Right. And, and the, so funny story. Um, uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, there was a, a woman, uh, that was on the fencing team, um, who was from Canada and her sister, uh, lived in, in England and the sister came to visit at one point and, um, asked, uh, where was the loo? Um, and then we all looked at her and we didn't understand what she was saying. And she said, you know, the WC and we all looked yeah. at her like, we still don't understand what you're saying. Like try, so so try, try another, it? another euphemism. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, and I think okay. she said at that point I need to pee, and yeah, then yeah. like, okay, okay. Well, then we can we can help you we with can that. help you with that, right? Oh man. Um. So, uh, so we got that. Oh, the only other thing that I wanted to tell you about that has a little bit of a food safety crossover, uh, or at least is going to lead us into our ep- our episode and food safety talking. Um, as I went uh, last weekend to Athens, Georgia, mm. where I asked you for your input, you were not very helpful about places to go. Ah, uh, Wuxtree. I said Wuxtree, and you went. I did. I did. Um, it was so. Let me tell you for for college towns um, that there are different for for listeners, especially outside of the U.S. who didn't sort of grow up in the um, college town um, or land grant world that you know that you and I kind of live in. Um, the, there are different types of land grant college towns. Mm. Uh, there's there's the very small like. Um, place where the entire town is based around the college, and so uh, like look, Manhattan, look, Kansas, yeah, or, or Ithaca, even Ithaca, New York, Ithaca, right? Yeah, yeah, Ithaca, New York, um, uh, Blacksburg, Virginia. I would no, say is, yep, is yep, similar to that. Yep. I've never been to Starksville, Mississippi, but that's my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's then there's the urban type um, uh, campuses, and Raleigh's one of these for with NC State and yeah, and Rutgers is as well. Yep. Yes, yep. Uh, University of Maryland and College Park. Yep. You're in a you're very close to a city, or you're part of a, a big city. And then there's Athens, which is totally different. It's kind of this mid-sized town. I don't know. It's like 100,000 people, 150,000 people. Um, the it is larger than a than a college town. The uh, University of Georgia is, is most definitely a big part of what's there, but it but it has this this like character and and um, the, I don't know livability that that's kind of different. It really reminds Danny and I of the uh, of Guelph. Uh, of a of a town that that existed before that the um, college got 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 placed in or or grew around and everything grew around it and it's it was just a very cool spot like it's got its own vibe 
it it is um, uh, a a really easy town to get around. There's a lot of traffic for for what I'd expected in, in a college town, but it was it was cool. So we played in this. Uh, I didn't play, but my my son Jack played in a hockey tournament there, which is outside in a parking garage, and it could not have worked out better. So one day it was 70 degrees and the next day it was 40 degrees and, and it's covered. So even though it was raining a little bit, it didn't really harm the the ice and everything went off without a hitch, but it was cool just to hang out in this, in the town and, um, you know, walk around. We had lots of time in between, um, games. And so we, we went to, uh, a couple of, um, different restaurants and, and spots. We went to the, the world famous varsity. I think it's called the varsity the varsity. Yep. Um, and, uh, a, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it, I think like a Georgia tech Atlanta institution, but there's also one, um, at, uh, university of Georgia. And then we went to, uh, a brewery called, uh, creature comforts, I think. Um, yep. Creature comforts in, uh, um, in Athens and it was really great. Hung out there. Um, rain, I, I'm training for this, um, this relay again, I'd, I've talked about in the past running across South Carolina. So a few of us went for a run along Greenway and it was really cool. And then we did a self-guided tour of REM, uh, history. So we went to walk street, they were closed. Um, we went, there's a, a steeple from, um, St. Mary's Episcopal church was, which is where REM had their first show. The steeple's still there. The church isn't there. The steeple's in a really crazy spot. It's in the, the parking lot of a condo. So, so we're there like taking pictures and people are just rolling out. Um, we went to, um, uh, Weaver D's fine foods, which is a restaurant that has, um, where the, the term automatic for the people came for, from the uh, album automatic for the people. And then when we got to that point, there were other people that were also doing like a self-guided tour. Like you go to these spots and it was a Sunday morning. Um, nothing's, nothing's open. And, um, there's like two other cars getting out, taking pictures. So anyway, it was, it was cool. I would, I, 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 we have friends at, uh, university of Georgia that, um, you know, I think we've mentioned on the podcast in the past, um, uh, the Harrisons, uh, Judy and Mark Harrison, and then Manpreet Singh. And there are other, other people that we know, but I, uh, and Elizabeth Andrus. So I sort of connected with all of them before and it didn't work out to, to see anybody. Um, but it's a cool, like I, it's, it's a place that I could live and not, not that I'm, I'm going to like go live there, but there aren't many places as I get older that I could see myself living in. And, and Athens, Georgia is one of them. And it was, it was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most definitely. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say I would, I, I'm, it's interesting you drew that distinction. I would, I would really put Athens in the same bucket as places like, uh, Ithaca and UC Dave and, and, and Davis, California, right. In that it's, it's got a, its own vibe most definitely, but it's primarily driven by the college town. So, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's, but it's different. Um, I don't know when, when we lived in Manhattan, it's, it's like, man, everything is purple, right? Like everything is about that, that college. And, and we were there in the summer and it was dead. Um, I've been to Athens before, um, at other, you know, a couple other times of the year and it wasn't, it didn't feel dead. Like there's, there's a whole vibe going on, um, Mm. outside of the college. Oh yeah, and and for sure, Ithaca in the summer is not is not that at all. It's just there's just not any not many students, but it's still a very vibrant um, town for sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so before we get too far in, I'm gonna 
give you a heads up. There is some painting going on in the office next to mine. So we may hear like, and I'll do, I'm going to do a little Foley here for us. May hear something like this, which is like (laughs) scraping or rolling because this is happening every once in a while or banging. So I just want to, I, yep. Those are the three, three, um, sounds that I've heard, uh, in the couple hours leading up to our uh, our recording today, okay. so well, just to, I, well I when I that. when I started when I was waiting, um, both dogs were in here with me, and and Gibbs was uh, was sitting at my feet, um, and then they went out uh, into the hallway, and then they started um, uh, fighting, and so then I closed the door. So now, uh, so so you might have heard dogs if you're listening for for the audio uh, effects. Uh, you might have heard dogs earlier from my end, but now um, unless they're really noisy and they're right outside the door, you're not going to hear them. So. Oh well, um, I as you talked like as you said that I just started Google image searching Brett Michaels sitting at feet, which is giving me a whole bunch of different weird pictures. So for those who don't know the inside <laughs> joke, the uh, on this uh, Gibbs Gibbs's former name, which I really only refer to him as, is, is Brett Michaels. Um, and every time uh, Don talks about um, Gibbs on Facebook or somewhere, I I, fi- I try to find. Brett Michaels doing things that are similar. Like I think there was a picture that I found of Brett Michaels by a fence uh, <laughs> after like hours of searching. And it's like, oh, <laughs> like I spent way too much, way too much time looking for Brett Michaels pictures doing things. And so Brett Michaels feet is a, is, is giving me a weird kind of vibe. Don't, don't Google that. I would suggest Googling any name, a name of any celebrity and feet uh, and you'll find some weird stuff. Like, so yes. yeah, definitely don't, don't, Google uh, Andrea Ocasio Cortez feet. Uh. Oh, please don't! And this this one came up with <laughs> when you when you Google Brett Michaels feet, there's like a horrible picture that is captioned Stephen Tyler's deformed feet, <laughs> and I don't know if it's his deformed feet or not, but his his toes look like they are not in a position that toes should be in. So, um, so don't, don't please no one, no one Google Steven Tyler deformed feet <laughs> show title deformed <laughs> feet. Okay. Not Googling it now. Don't well, and, and, and the issue with, <clears throat> with, uh, uh, Andrea Ocasio-Cortez is that somebody, anyway, we'll, we'll link to an article because there was a fake, there was a fake nude of her that was, uh, revealed as fake by, uh, someone who you might describe as a foot fetishist. So, um, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. It was woke, woke by feet. Yep. Um, so, all right, well, let's, I mean, let's get into, let's get into this. I have, we, I, we've got to park at least a 20 minute discussion on something <laughs> because this one, I don't know when we want to do it, but I've got to, I've got to, Oh hold. my God. Oh Jesus. Do not look. We're going to link, I'm we're going to link, you. we're going to link to a picture, to a, a page that you should not look at. Do not look at Steven oh, Tyler's deformed feet. He's an ugly. He's an ugly guy, but his feet are especially. Ugly. I'm. I need to. I need to. Poof, I need to cleanse my palate. Okay. I mean, can you? Can we verify that those are his feet, or is it just I, people saying? I don't. I don't. I don't even want. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know anymore. <laughs> uh, who knew that that's what we would? Yeah, you know, I can't wait for the call from our, our my network administrator. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Chapman here, we've had a, a few websites that were flagged on your computer. One of them, could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about Steven Tyler's deformed feet? Is it, could you tell me about how this might be important as part of your job? Yeah. I'm not ready to have that conversation. 
Uh, all right. So we've got feedback and we've got uh, a conversation that we really, really want to uh, talk about on um, temperatures, cooking temperature for frozen vegetables. Okay. So where do you want to, where do you want right. to start? Well, let's, let's start with the uh, Canadian food segment. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't prepared anything. I know, but I, I know, I know, but I have. <laughs> so, so here we go. So, uh, so this says, uh, please uh, share all details freely. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, I don't know if I even came. Uh, let's. Well, we can. Well, we can't. We can't. We can't call this guy deep weed because we already have a deep weed. Um, right. Deep deep seaweed. Um, deep deep dulcy. Um, so he says, "Hi, uh, I'm an agricultural economist student at Dalhousie Agricultural Campus." Um, and this, and I apologize, this is one that came in a while ago and then for some reason we missed it. It didn't right, get picked right. up, um, but we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll go from here. So he says, my question is regarding Dulce. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, which Dulce? is, uh, Dulce God, de Leche. Dulce. Yeah. Dulce. I think, I think it's Dulce. Dulce? Okay. Dulce. Dulce. Yeah. Sorry. Dulce. Um, which is Palmaria palmata, a regularly consumed red seaweed, which is native to the North Atlantic and which I first began to eat when I moved to Nova Scotia, because apparently that's what you do when you move to Nova Scotia is you get to eat weird stuff. Um, uh, for more studies, uh, while delicious in the subject of active psychological research, one thing that has come to up in my mind is regarding the storage of it. Uh, while I know I don't, while I know I don't store it as I should, ideally it's stored in dry and cool conditions. But given its high volume nature, there isn't room right now in my pantry. I haven't been able to find anything which talks about microbial growth on seaweed, given the varied varied storage conditions. If you're unfamiliar with dulse and its culinary nature, I would recommend reading um, uh, on the human consumption of red seaweed uh, dulse, and, and we'll link to that article. Um, 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 most of the research for both dulse and other seaweeds is food safety concerns, rightfully given there's much that this is a much more likely risk, even if generally you would need to consume huge amounts of seaweed, focuses on the potential for accumulation of iodine or heavy, other heavy metals. So right, it's a toxic, it's a toxic food safety issue. It's not a, a, a microbial uh, food safety uh, issue. So um, uh, anyway, how, how hostile or receptive an environment it might be for microbial growth. It doesn't seem to have been written about by anyone that I've been able to find. Um, also, a slight follow-up uh, would be to consider this in the context of consumption. While most uh, most of the time I consume it cooked in foods, I like to mix it with barley or rice, beans, and vegetables in a stir-fry or soup. It is also it is also edible, hydrated, much as one would with wakame, which is another type of seaweed. I'm curious if there's anything documented about soaking process for seaweeds five minutes in warm water uh, in food safety context as well. So uh, before I get into my uh, reply, um, do you do you have anything you want to add? Well, I do, but it has little to do with seaweed and a lot to do with um, Truro, Nova Scotia. Go for <laughs> where, it. Yeah, so, um, so I one, one of the very first – um, talks that I, that I ever gave was in Truro, Nova Scotia when I was a master's student. And I, um, I, I, I don't know if I got an invite or Doug got an invite to go talk to Greenhouse Nova Scotia about the project that we were doing with, um, the Ontario Greenhouse Vegetable Growers. And so I flew out to, um, this is what, what happens as a graduate student. I have family in, in Nova Scotia. My aunt and uncle live in, in Halifax and, um, Danny, um, my, my wife went to, went to the university or went to Dalhousie university in Halifax. Um, and, um, I had a, a couple of friends that also went to, to Dalhousie. So I, I remember like very vividly this, this weekend of, I flew to, um, I flew out and my like 
aunt picked me up at the airport and drove me to Truro. Like this is before Uber. And I don't even know why, um, that, like how this even happened and then dropped me off there. And then I took a train back to, to Halifax, but gave this, this talk in, um, you know, somewhere in, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Truro. And it was, um, it was one of those, like, I don't know if you think back to, um, actually let's, let's link to an, an article that, um, a friend of the show, Michelle Daniluk sent us around a while ago about failures. Academics should keep a, a CV of their failures. This was one of those, one of those, um, like learning moments of a talk where I, I missed I missed the mark on what it was they were looking for, and I came in to this talk as like, here's a whole bunch of food safety stuff that you should know about in greenhouses, and here's my thesis project, and, and let's talk about materials and methods, and let's talk about results, and 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 you know what I was looking at at that time was um, microbiological sampling of tomatoes and cucumbers and wash water. And they, that's not what they wanted. Like they wanted to know, okay, this is, this is information that is adjacent to how, how should we manage food safety in our, in our greenhouses? And, and I didn't really, I I've gotten much better at that, you know, 18 years later, whenever this, this was probably around 2000 or 2001, um, or yeah, somewhere in that, in that timeframe, I'm much better at it now, but I didn't get, I didn't know how to, how to steer it back. Like I didn't prepare for that. I was like, I prepared to tell you about, we took a bunch of samples and this is what we found. And, and I remember going back to the hotel afterwards cause I had to, you know, whenever I took the, the train was the next day. And, and I was like, man, that, that sucked. And that feeling of a terrible talk is always going to be equated every time I see Truro. Like it was, it was, so anyway, that was, that's all I have to add. I don't know anything about seaweed. Wow. So yeah, so there's, a, so there's a lot to un, unpack. Here. So, uh, so first of all, um, we will link to on the human consumption of the red seaweed dulse, uh, which is, a, which is a very, very interesting article. Um, we'll also link to the, uh, Truro.ca, uh, webpage so that you can find out more about Truro, which they call the hub of Nova Scotia. Um, we, we will also it link, is. we will also link to s the seaweed resources of Eastern Canada, which is an article that, um, uh, deep seaweed, um, suggest whose name is real name is William, um, uh, suggested to me in the, in a follow-up uh, email. And so again, it's fascinating reading. Um, also when you said Truro, the first thing that occurred to my mind is I know Truro, but the Truro that I know is the one that's on, uh, Cape Cod, uh, Massachusetts. Oh. So we will, we will also link to the Wikipedia page on Truro, Massachusetts. Um, and as you said, I couldn't find exactly what Michelle sent us in terms of uh, the, the CV, but there is a, a pretty good article on um, uh, Princeton professor's CV of failures. And, and while we're talking about failures, I, I do want to mention um, a, a failure of, of mine from very early on in my career. And, and, it, and it's also got an uh, oceanic connection. So uh, when I was a uh, first starting out as an extension specialist, a guy uh, came into my office and he said, I have an idea for an invention um, that uses um, conchiolin. And, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that's how I say it. And, and conchiolins uh, are complex proteins excreted by the outer shell of uh, – by a mollusk's outer epithelium, uh, the mantle. 
And basically, his idea was that this, because of the nature of this complex protein, you could actually use it as an adhesive. And so I wrote a grant, which was funded by the New Jersey Commission on Science and Technology, a $50,000 grant, which at the time was fantastic, right? I was a young assistant professor looking to get tenure, and I wrote this grant. Well, it turns out, Ben, that um, as a food microbiologist, I am really not very good at protein chemistry. <laughs> and and this the chemistry of this particular, and you know, again, the idea was, oh, here's a New Jersey entrepreneur, and we're going to help him. This is an extension project. Um, and we just, myself and, and my, my technician or my, my program associate, Sue Alber, spent many, many hours going nowhere with this project. Um, but the good news is, is that we, Sue and I did uh, hit it off in terms of our love of statistics and the analysis of microbiological growth. And, and, and Sue was instrumental in uh, getting me started in predictive food microbiology, and she got really interested actually in biostatistics, and she actually went back to graduate school and got a, a PhD, I think, from uh, Cornell University, uh, basically in nutritional sciences, but but doing um, uh, you know some really complicated statistical stuff. So, so the I guess the moral of the story is like don't do stuff you don't know anything about, um, and focus on what your passion is, um, and and sometimes uh, you'll you'll uh, you'll you'll have a detour along the way. Right, right. And, and do like, it's okay to make mistakes, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, that, that was a learning experience for both Sue and myself. And, and we still, uh, I still think about her on a regular basis. And I think she, I think she's working uh, somewhere in California, uh, as a, uh, at, at a university. So, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, I, I sort of, uh, you know, on that, <clears throat> um, I, I also, um, like I also got, um, gave a talk, uh, around the same time on a topic that I didn't know enough about. So like, it made me think, so, so this one that I gave in Churro, it's like, well, I knew this stuff. I just didn't, I, I just didn't read the, I didn't read what they were looking for. And then I didn't prepare for it. And I wasn't quick enough on my feet. I didn't have a, um, a, a catalog of things to go to that I could steer that conversation. But I also made a, a, a mistake, um, giving a talk about, um, genetic, genetically engineered BT corn and how that might affect, um, bee populations to a group of, um, like bee farmers, like the Ontario bee honeybee association or something. And, um, I, th- this one was, was me like someone, someone had asked if I could go do it for them. Um, and we're, they were like, yeah, yeah, there's, here's, here's some slides, you know, talk about whatever you want. This is a risk communication thing. You know about risk communication. Um, you know about the, the science of it. Um, and, and just go, you know, go in and, and talk about how, where, where, how would you communicate uncertainties and what, what's going to happen? And what I didn't know that I was getting into and neither did the person who, who asked me to give the talk was that. I was like coming from, you know, the quote university to talk about how great genetically modified foods were and with no regard to how that impacted other things. And, and, and it was it like turned into this, like, like you're a corporate chill. Um, what, yeah. What about, what about our honey? Can we even eat honey? Um, and I just, it was one where I didn't know, like, 
I didn't know enough of the outside layers of what this could get into. And now like truthfully now I, I would, I, I'm, I'm good to go into that kind of conversation, right? Like I, I, I have much, I have much more experience and, and much more, um, knowledge of the, both the risk communication literature as well as the science literature. And, and I think I have a different, like, I, I, you know, as, as you and I have talked about just doing this podcast, talking about risk, um, gives me a different philosophy where I'd, I'd be much, be much more suited to do, to have that conversation now and say, yeah, there are things that we don't know. And, and, but here's where, here's where data is pointing to. And the things that you're talking about and bringing up are real concerns. And this is what, what it all kind of looks like. Um, but I was, I, I really was coming as this very green, um, newly graduated BS student in molecular biology and genetics who had just gotten into this world of risk communication and, and just didn't another one where I just didn't like, I, I didn't think about the, like what they were looking for. And I don't even know if I would have asked the right questions or the person that asked me to go on, on their behalf would have asked the right questions. But I, that's another experience that I, I think about and talk to my students about all the time. Like, and I, I am, I, I draw on that. I wouldn't change having either that churro experience or the B experience at all because I think it's made me better now. Like having those, um, and and we've we've talked a little bit in the past about um, uh, about what you know what I've I've termed the the Pete Snyder factor. Having um, and uh, having those experiences of a bad talk and on Pete Snyder, Pete's Pete's a, a, a just a a guru on the science and microbiology around retail foods. And as I started producing things, info see, info sheets, blog posts, Pete would always um, really highlight when I got something wrong and not in a, in a negative way, but, but, but would say this is wrong and you need to correct it. And it made that always, I still think about when I write stuff, like making sure that it would pass the Pete test. Like don't, don't rush through things. Know that someone, if they, if it gets to their hands and they are knowledgeable about it, that they might ask a question about this or say, you got it wrong. So make sure you get it right. All three of those things that I like, that I think are, would go on my list of failures are things that I wouldn't change. Cause I think they made me better at what I do now. Cause I think about them all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely for for sure. So, um yeah, and uh, yeah, and there's we could we could go and and I can talk about, you know, some of my early experiences and I, I did so uh, Susan apparently is at UC Davis. She's a lecturer in uh, biostatistics uh there and there's a wonderful profile of her as a student um which we will also link to which talks about her time at at Rutgers as well. So, um yeah, so and and we, you know, she she learned how to be an employee and I learned how to be a boss uh with her and so it was a very it was very interesting experience, uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't for sure, I wouldn't, wouldn't change any of that. Um, just to to close a loop on uh, Canadian seaweed, um, uh, basically the the nut of the the, the net result of it is uh, that the product uh, that uh, deep uh, deep seaweed is is mentioning is, is essentially a dried seaweed product, and I would put it in terms of risk, I would put it in the same category as um, other dried plant products like spices. So, um, and, and certainly the fact that the seaweed comes from the ocean, it means it's going to have, um, salt in it and that's going to help, uh, with stability, um, rather than hurt stability, um, uh, 
Although, depending on the nature of how the seaweed is harvested, if it's harvested by hand, hands can have staphylococcus. Um, seaweed has high salt, and so it might inhibit other organisms, and so you could theoretically get some staphylococcal contamination. I think uh, at one point we were testing seaweed from the dining halls, and we were finding in some brands and some batches we were finding staphylococcus. And again, not not high levels, but we were finding staphylococcus, so that would be a, a risk that would need to be to be need to be managed. But generally speaking, as a for as a risk go, as risks go, if it's a dried uh, seaweed product, it's relatively low risk, and and as long as your rehydration process isn't like overnight, you're you're probably you're probably fine in terms of microbiological risk. So, so thanks to thanks to William uh, Deep Deep Seaweed for that really interesting. Well, we had a really interesting discussion online, and it prompted a completely unrelated, really interesting discussion here on the podcast. So so thanks for that. Absolutely, thank you. Um, should we talk about, uh, talk about the Instagram? Yes. Instagram. Bit? Instagram. All right. So, um, this one, this one comes from, uh, deep, deep Graham, mm. deep, deep Grammy. Uh, so, uh, uh, messages and, and of course this it, they, people do include their names, but as you know, if this is your first episode of listening to food safety talk, we always like to uh, sort of gloss somebody a, a new nickname, uh, yeah, that whether, is always, whether they want deep, it or not, whether they right, have to right. be anonymous or not. Yeah. Yeah, Deep, Deep Graham says, hey, first off, uh, I want to say how much I appreciate taking time out of your busy schedules uh, to do stuff on the podcast. Um, uh, when a, uh, and, and so this uh, individual is um, at uh, – we, we won't like totally uh, uh, go go into the, the um, OPSEC, but they're at a – they are an individual who works in a lab of someone who else we know, um, and they listen to the lab when they uh, are doing stuff with – um, Clostridium perfringens, botulinum, and Bacillus uh, Bacillus cereus. Um, so, so the question that uh, Deep Graham has is: Social media is the potential to bridge the gap between scientists and non-scientists. Our undergraduates use one platform in particular very, very often: Instagram. Have you guys ever considered using Instagram either via single video, photo post, or story mode to explain what you were quote doing in the lab today as a way to visually show people what, how, and why you're conducting a set of experiments? It seems like Dr. Chapman's new kitchen has lots of potential for showing listeners and others what we as scientists see and do in the lab every day. Thoughts. Um, and so this is a really, I, this is a really cool, um, cool question. So, um, we, as part of the, um, safe plates information center that, that we're building and, and launch uh, sort of alongside the, the kitchens, um, it is part of that is to to really focus on social media as a way to engage people, and it's something that you know you and I do a little bit on Twitter. Um, really want to um, ramp up our efforts in that area, whether it's um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Snapchat. Those are the the four that we've kind of uh, identified here in, in the last little while. And the idea that that we've really focused on um, is okay. Well, let's let's try to get let's make some images that people might share. With you know, let's make some infographics that that are formatted nicely. You can view really nice on a on a phone in Instagram and put it out there. I hadn't thought about what Deep Graham's talking about, which is using the story mode or using other modes to not just like share information, but to peel back the the onion a little bit on here's what what science looks like when we're when we're doing something and not just do it in and I, I think what he what he's alluding to is not just doing it as um 
here's a picture of, of, of what's happening in the kitchen, but, but really sort of planning a narrative around here are five or six pictures that are explaining the types of things that we're doing today. And, and I really like, I really like this, this idea. And, and so, um, as, as part of what, what we're planning, um, on doing and ramping this up, I've kind of added this to our, to our list of thinking about using Instagram and Snapchat, I think explicitly on here are a collection of things that are around one experiment. You know, maybe this is when, when we start roasting a bunch of turkeys and chickens overnight and in our, um, in our ovens later this month, um, that, that that's where we, we kind of focus on. It's like, let's tell the story in a bunch of pictures in real time and then, um, tell the story later with data using those pictures and then tell the story with data and no pictures in the, in the publication and, and trying to make this whole process more accessible to people. I, I really like, I like this idea and it's not, you know, not exactly the type of thing that we had thought about doing. So I'm, I'll, um, give, give credit to deep Graham where, uh, where credit's due and, um, and deep Graham's first name is Max. Uh, so thanks Max for, for that. Do you, have you ever thought about this? Well, I have, and my my, my answer, uh, my answer to Max was was explains my philosophy. Um, and and again, this is maybe this is a good uh, we can dispel the myth of what it looks like to be a food safety professor. Um, most of my day is me traveling somewhere or me typing at a computer, right? Like it, the actual work is done right. by my students, and so um, uh, inevitably, if I if I walk into the laboratory, either it's because I'm looking to find a student, um, or I am uh, walking in wearing a lab coat um, because there's a television camera behind me and everyone knows that when you talk to microbiologists, they're always in a laboratory wearing a lab coat. So um, so that's the only... That's the only time I'm ever actually in the laboratory. So my so so I don't I, I leave a lot of that day to day what you're doing in the lab to my students. And unlike uh, I think um, uh, Deep uh, uh, Graham's uh, boss, who is a very engaged person and who is actually active and out in the laboratory, um, uh, she actually is, plays a big big a much bigger role in what's going on in the laboratory than say I do. So so it would be so if if, if I were to Instagram uh, my day. It would be rather boring. So, <laughs> here's another keyboard, kids. Here's <laughs> yep. the same keyboard at a different place. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I mean, and ultimately, I'm I'm in a, a similar situation, right? Like, I think I spend most of my time um, reading, meeting, talking, um, doing very less hands-on stuff. Um, but I, I think you know, I think this brings up. And I kind of look at this as how to empower my, the folks that are doing the work as, as part of the, part of my group to, to share these stories and what can we do to, 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 to put that narrative out there. Um, and I, and I, I really, yeah, I I mean, I, I want, I want to spend some time, um, thinking about that as, as we go, as we go forward to, I I think there's a, a public, service part of this, which is, Hey, there's a bunch of tax dollars and non tax dollars that are going into what we do every day. And this is kind of some of the stuff that we're doing to help hopefully answer some questions that might make people, uh, safer in the, in the future. Um, and then there's this like, um, un, yeah, uh, unmasking the science from a, from a citizen science and a public understanding science pro, uh, approach that I think is important. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, good. 
Um, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So, uh, so let's. So the next bit of feedback here comes from uh, often, uh, often feedbacker uh, Deep Crimson, um, who writes to give some feedback on um, overnight simmering, but also some feedback on uh, water and um, and particularly a practice that that I have, I'm very interested in, and, and we I think and I don't remember. Maybe you remember whether Ben whether it was. Michelle or Linda Harris, but both of whom work a lot with the citrus industry. And they were repeatedly told by the citrus industry, well, the outside of citrus is, is not, um, doesn't, you know, we, we don't have to worry about that because people don't eat that. Right, um, right. And what uh, Deep Crimson has sent to us and what anybody on the podcast, um, you know, who listens to the podcast has seen if you've walk in, walked into a hotel lobby recently is these giant containers of water that typically have um, citrus sitting in them. And it might be a lot of citrus. The, the particular picture that Deep Crimson sent us um, has rosemary and uh, it looks like lemons and oranges in it. And it has a, a, a color like it, like a lemonade kind of color. Um, and so obviously the surface of those citrus products are in contact with that water. And there, there was a, an article that came out on where you, they tested um, lemons. It was a, it was a, a BS article where they tested lemons and they found fecal coliforms. Um, don't even get me started. Um, and so I think the risk from these products is relatively low, but certainly the outside of these products can contact something that people eat, namely or drink. In this case, namely the water. So um, now, what I what I also uh, I think I shared. The, I don't know if I shared this with uh, with uh, Deep Crimson, but what we've done is we see these uh, these these things at the university dining halls that we inspect, and we have sampled them periodically. Sampled the liquid. And they're they're microbiologically they're relatively clean. It's not like they're massively contaminated. But as a practice, um, it's not a. From my point of view, I don't think it's an ideal practice. But but I mean, the, I think the risk seems to be relatively low. Right. Right. Yeah. I I just threw something into the um, podcast super secret podcast folder for you to look at. Actually, we've been working on. Um, some info on infused water, and there's ah, not right. a lot. That's of what it's called, infused water. Infused water, yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of data out there on it. Um, like even even the stuff that you're you're talking about, um, you and I should should like chat and think about how we might. Um, collectively do something on on this. Yeah, the well, we'll, we, we'll we'll go collect data if you want. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll definitely do that. Well, and you've already got some, so maybe what we should do is sort of say, okay, this is what we this is what's out there. Let's put together a research note on here are some practices, and this is what the micro looks like, and and then do something. Um, it came up uh, a few times um, in for for us. I, I had a question back in the summer about it uh, from a, a you know a media person. Um, we we do a lot of recipe reviews because here's here's one of the things that that happens um, when you are when you start saying things like hey there's not a lot of good food safety information in recipes and tell people you should do more food safety in recipes that ultimately means that you get a bunch of recipes because they're like okay smarty pants you think there's not a lot of food safety tell us what we should do and we got a bunch of recipes from some internal documents um, uh, here at NC State with infused water and so this was like. Like okay, how should we handle it? What what would be the best practices? So we started trying to answer some of those questions, and and as as you mentioned, the outside of that um, you know, of the citrus, and whether it's citrus or berries or cucumbers, um, citrus is is probably handled a little differently than the others because it's not from the production standpoint looked at as as it's being consumed. The other two are ready to eat foods, so you're just sort of highlighting that. But then looking at 
um, what's the potential for growth in that water and, and, you know, warm water would be different than cold water. And so we talk a little bit about that in this, in this document that we're not going to post cause it's not gone through any, um, any review and we're, we're kind of still working on it, but that's the kind of stuff that, that I think of, you know, cleaning and sanitizing the, um, the container so that if there is any contamination that it's not forming biofilms and it's not there all, all the time. And then, um, looking at temperature control, uh, for it, but it's an, in, it's like you said, you, it doesn't matter what hotel lobby you go to. Um, it, it, there's infused water everywhere, and and it's and I I like I like this stuff. Like I like that little. This is why I, I drink uh, the Lacroix. A little a little hint of ester of of citrus in my water is uh, kind of is a nice thing. So yeah. So I and I I do not um, consume water out of those dispensers. Uh, I probably, it probably is fine. And, and, and who knows, maybe it's healthier than, and then always, or, and certainly better for the planet than drinking water out of bottles. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, but it just kind of skis me out a little bit, but I mean, I love, I love, uh, I'm drinking some seltzer right now. Uh, I love the, the lightly flavored and low calorie seltzers you can get, uh, at places like, uh, Panera. They've, they've got some, some good, good products those places. Um, I like the, uh, Perrier that's, uh, the lemon or lime, uh, Perrier. Um, so yeah, so your, your infused water safety tips, uh, info sheet is not available on online, but we will link to an article by Michigan state university extension, uh, entitled enjoy infused water safely yes. by Z Chen. Um, uh, and then we will also link to this not very good article on microbial flora on restaurant beverage, lemon slices. Um, and then there was an article from Reader's Digest that led me to that, which is uh, the, the, quote, serious reasons you need to stop putting lemon wedges into your water, which is complete uh, BS in my opinion. So we'll, we'll link, even though it's bad, we'll link to it because it's just BS. Yeah, yeah. Well, and um, one, one other thing from uh, Deep Crimson's uh, message, she uh, mentioned that we uh, kind of came down hard on cooking overnight. And mm-hmm. I think, I, I think what we're, where we're going is that we're going to generate some data on it, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the, that's the question is uh, uncertainty. And sometimes it might not be a great idea. And sometimes it's, it's probably fine, but let's get some data and well, then share and that and let's y- tell a story about it. Yeah. And, and what she says is she, she keeps the liquid, uh, usually chicken stock with all the bones and so on, about 185 degrees Fahrenheit, just barely moving. And I've got no no concerns whatsoever about 185. I do I do have concerns um, about, again, and maybe, and this is perhaps irrational, I worry about a breeze coming in and blowing out the gas stove and uh, and then suffocating uh, or blowing up the house. So Right, right, yes. You know, I worry about that. And that's a silly thing to worry about. But uh, yeah, anyway, speaking of which, um, I'm just sitting here at my desk and uh, I'm looking at two uh, smoke detectors uh, that are sitting on my desk because our smoke detectors have been going off at night um, for a variety of reasons, um, which we probably don't want to get into on the podcast right now. But um, but heck, let's do, let's do it. So did I mention right, I'm, that? I'm, I'm, did I'm I mention? That, welcome to the not food safety portion. Uh, welcome to the safety but not food safety portion of the podcast. It's right in the middle, so you can't skip it. Sorry about that. Um, have I have I did I mention to you that our furnace went out? Stop uh, working. 
No, so you didn't had, mention to me, but I think you posted somewhere, yeah, and it was cold. Yeah, like, it was. It was. It was during the polar vortex, and I yeah. posted that um, of uh, uh, helpful hint. Um, if you don't ever clean your furnace, eventually it will stop working, and that's what <laughs> happened at our house. Um, is our furnace desperately needed to be cleaned? And I can highly recommend. Um, I think they're called Nova. So if you if you are work in the uh, in in the New Jersey area and you need to have your furnace clean, I highly recommend Nova. Um, um, but um, they were very good and they came right out. But the reason why we learned of the problem is that the house gets cold at night because that's how we have our thermostat set. But when it gets like when the furnace is not working, it gets even colder. And it turns out that if you use um, non-lithium batteries in your smoke detectors, the batteries will start to fail as the that's te- a temp or the voltage will go down in those batteries, and huh. as it get the temperature gets and you could this is a thing you can actually Google like what causes my smoke detector to go off when it gets cold, right? Um, and um, so we one of the things that I did well, we, first of all we fixed the furnace, so yay, uh, got some batteries, some lithium batteries, replaced um, what I thought was all of the batteries in all of the smoke detectors, um, and, but we still had a, the problem, um, not like going off all night long, like it did the one night when the furnace was out, but, um, it turns out I missed a smoke detector. And so there was one oh, no. smoke detector that did not have a lithium battery. And so that, uh, but I, but then even after I removed that one from the circuit, it was still going off. And it, another thing, and this is welcome to, um, smoke detector safety talk, um, we have in our bedroom in the winter, we have a humidifier, and the smoke detector is right above the humidifier. Well, it turns out the smoke detectors don't work when the relative humidity is above 85%, and that's what was happening, and that's why the smoke detector was going off. So huh. a lot of smoke detector adventures here at the Schaffner household, So, uh, but I think hopefully I've got all of our smoke detector problems solved. Uh, that that sounds that sounds awesome. Um, <laughs> we... we uh, I will uh, I will riff off of your smoke detector um, for a second, and we are often um, uh, chasing down a bleeping uh, like a smoke detector, and I don't mean bleeping like um, like I'm like trying fricking. not to get that explicit yeah. tag. Yeah, no, like it's it's bleeping, it's bleep bleep, and it chirps, and I can't. I I, I don't know if you you have this like we because we have no, really only lived in the house we live in for like 18 months, I still don't know where they all are. And- <laughs> well, Ben, I have lived in this house for, for almost 20 years and I still didn't know where they all are. So right. yeah, you know, easy, easily done. Well, and, and then you're just like hunting it down and the dogs up oh, and it's four o'clock yeah. in the morning. Yes, exactly. And, and it's, and you like I've multiple times I've run around and I was like, Oh, I can't find it. And it's not chirping. And then you go back to sleep like a sitcom and then it chirps again, again. just taunt you. Um, so yeah. And then we also have ours are, I don't, I don't really understand, um, smoke detector, um, technology because ours have batteries and they are hardwired. And so the hardwired aspect, I guess the battery is the battery backup and it chirps when there's no battery. But if you unplug it from the wall, like I tried to, when it was chirping, then it sets all of them off for a certain amount of time, which is terrible when you have a tenant who lives in an apartment above and it's connected. And then now at three o'clock in the morning, everybody's awake, including the person who is paying to stay in your house. Um, so yeah, I, I totally, I totally understand. Um, 
what, what you're doing. And we still uh, don't have a good sense of where all the smoke detectors are. But they are great things, I think, when a, a smoke issue happens. I think they like the the message is make sure they are all up and working. Well, and you should use lithium batteries, not non-lithium batteries, and um, don't put them over a humidifier. <laughs> yes, good, good. Uh, best best practices and SOPs uh, for uh, safety, non-food safety talk. Um, cool. Well, we have, I have one more piece one, of feedback, yep. um, and this one uh, uh, came from uh, someone uh, who we are going to call a, a Deep Corner. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, deep corner writes, uh, enjoy the podcast. Um, and, and despite having no background in food safety, except aside from being a food eater who does not want to barf, which is a good, good spot to be. Um, what I would love to hear is just a quick segment that you might do a three to five minute rundown, um, of different bacteria molds, uh, fungi risks. You could call it contamination core. For instance, episode one, salmonella, you could talk about risk factors, Foods that are susceptible, conditions that support growth, cross-contamination risks, method of abatement, if any, whether it creates heat-stable toxins, uh, whether risk can, be, uh, or risk can be reduced by cooking or reheating, symptoms you might experience, kind of like just a general thing about, all right, let's, let's do a, a deep dive on, um, on this pathogen. Um, and so uh, as uh, Deep Corner says, I feel like I get some of this in each show and I try my best to piece it all together. Um, right, because we're you know, sometimes talking about um, drying and salmonella and heat-stable toxins and staph aureus, but we don't really do all of it um, for, for all of this. Um, and so, uh, I, I mean, I think this is a, um, it, it's a cool idea. And, and I think maybe this is something, um, you know, maybe better suited. So, uh, you know, anyway, get, let me, let me get your take, your take on this. Sure. Well, so we should also say that deep corner concludes his message by saying, if you change nothing, I'll still be a loyal listener. And so thank you for having low expectations. Um, what I would say, and you know, we tried to do this. I try, I tried to make an effort to do this early on in the podcast was to imagine that people that were listening were not food safety professionals. Um, and and I tried to say, oh well, what is HACCP? H A C C P, and let's talk about what it is. Um, and and I've just gotten lazy. But um, the what we will do for this episode most definitely is there is a great web page um, that we love to make fun of and 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 complain about sometimes called foodsafety.gov. Yes, but that's a great place to go. There's a foodsafety.gov salmonella page, right? And there's also a page for a bunch of other foodborne pathogens. And so uh, certainly uh, go check if you're interested, again, for our first edition of Food Safety Corner, which may also be our last, the topic organism is salmonella. And your homework is to go read the uh, foodsafety.gov page on salmonella, and we will link to it, okay? So, so but thanks. I mean, thanks, uh, Deep Corner, for, for this. Is, this is a good suggestion. And, and I would say, too, what people should feel free to do is if we and, and this is you know and I I can I can I can appreciate this perspective because I listen to um, a lot of tech podcasts even though I'm not like a, a tech person or I, like I listen to ATP which stands for Accidental Tech Podcast and they talk about computer programming and I'm not a computer programmer and they often get into deep into stuff that the three of them on that show understand that I don't and I've just gotten very good at saying well you know I'm just going to listen. 
and try to absorb. And the other the other place where this comes up is on uh, Pod Save America when they when they've been t- they've been talking a lot about the filibuster, Ben, and right, how important right. it is that the candidates have a perspective on the filibuster. And and I know what the filibuster is, right? But I want a filibuster for dummies. Like, what is it that the filibuster is doing, right? And so, but on the other hand, I'm sure I could Google filibuster for dummies and probably right, find right, yeah. find a page that would explain it. So, but let me put this out there to our listeners. If we ever talk about something and repeatedly talk about something that you just simply don't understand, by all means, please feel free to to email us. And it's kind of a running joke on some other podcasts, um, you know, to to to, to you know, please email us, but by, by which they mean don't email us. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to have to explain everything to you. <laughs> you should but, just but, Google it, right? But if you, but if you made a good faith effort and you really don't understand something, by all means, that, the chances are, if you don't understand something and you made a good faith effort to figure it out and you're still puzzled, by all means, reach out to us because that's a, probably a good topic for discussion because it's something that we can do more than just say, hey, go look at this web page, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Um, and what, you know, one of the things that, that I had thought about with um, Deep Corner's suggestion is as part of the um, our, the Info Center that I mentioned before, uh, one of the things that, that I, I find is really helpful when, when we have an outbreak or an event or a recall or an incident for journalists is something like this, right? Like just a little tiny like thing that says, okay, there's a you know, salmonella and raw turkey uh, outbreak that's that's going on right now. How many times have we seen salmonella and raw turkey? What are the things? Where what are the risks associated with it? And and doing it in a in a text way, uh, kind of as um, like backgrounder backgrounder information. And so we might we might try to turn some of that stuff into social media and maybe little um, one and a half minute. Um, videos or, or something like that. Um, I don't, you know, like, like Don says, I don't know if it really fits the format of what we're trying to do um, here on food safety talk, but I think there are other places that something like this could be, could be developed for, or repurposing stuff that's, that's out there. Um, one of the links I just sent you in text that we'll put in show notes is for the bad bug book, which is also kind of a go-to um, historical text that I don't really even know the story on where it came from, um, but it gab- captures, I think there's like 31 different foodborne pathogens um, and talks a little bit about all of these things. Like, tell me about the organism, what are the species, what does it cause, um, wh- how frequent is it, what are sources, um, how does it get diagnosed, what are target populations, examples, and then other resources. So it's, it's a really good one to have um, as, as a companion to some of the stuff that we talk about. Yeah, and I, I, you know, the Bad Bug Book, I confuse the the Bad Bug Book with the BAM manual, right? And what the BAM, the BAM manual, for those of you that don't know, BAM stands for Bacteriological Analytical Manual. And that's the technical manual for how FDA does tests for different organisms. But but yeah, and and yeah, who knows what the origin of the Bad Bug Bad Bug Book is. Bad Bug um, Book. Bad Bug Book. Bad Bug Book. Bug Book. <laughs> Bag. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that we are we are referencing another podcast that we both listen to, and you, if you don't know what it is, you have to figure it out. Yep. Um, so um, anyway, so we'll link to Bad Bug Book. We'll link to FDA BAM manual. Um, BAM. B- BAM. 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 Uh, BAM. Manual. 
Manual. Manual. Manual. Um, uh, and we'll also link to the uh, uh, the what is a filibuster page for dummies. <laughs> per, per, it exists. Um, it, it totally I, exists. The um, the bam. Uh, one of my uh, every time I think about the bam, I think about um, a guy uh, who you and I both know, uh, Jeff Roadhamel, who I think was at FDA. At this time, when he was involved in writing some of the stuff that was for in in BAM, he's now the uh, department head at Clemson, Clemson University. Yep. But he he was one of the people that I met on my very first or maybe the second IAFP that I went to, and um, like hung out with, and we've become really good friends over time. <laughs> uh-huh. And I just think that he like every time someone says something about BAM, I'm like, oh yeah, Jeff Roadhamel wrote that. And I, I don't know, like it's not true. There are lots of different authors and components to to it. But someone told me that, um, you know, and, and I didn't even know what BAM was uh, until I'd I'd met him, and then. Um, yeah, so every every time I hear Bam, I think of Jeff. Yeah, well, and Jeff Jeff back in the day was a Clostridium botulinum researcher, and probably he did write sections of the CBOT section of the Bam manual. So, yeah, and I, I, I first met uh, Jeff because he was friends with uh, Guy Skinner, who I went to graduate school with, and, and Guy eventually ended up at, at Food and Drug Administration, and uh, like I said, yeah, Jeff ended up at Clemson. So, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Like, so thank you. Like, thank you, like, Deep Deep Corner. Very good. Very good suggestion. And and we, we did a lot of uh, talking. And um, you can go read a web page to learn about Salmonella. And thank you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your very nice, uh, sweet message. Um, absolutely. All right. So... I got one more one more thing, and then I got to get to our our the nugget of what I want to ask you about. Okay. Um. So the one more thing is is you. Uh, uh, ben, so, do you want to know the eight foods that are never worth I, saving for leftovers? I do, Don. I do. You you sent me a text about this. Um. I didn't. It didn't come across. I didn't see it. Um. And your text was, and I never responded to it. I'm gonna. I want to apologize to you in in front of the listeners. Um. You you wrote. Um. I thought it, I thought this turned out pretty good, and it's uh, an article that was in uh, Cook, Cooking Light uh, magazine, Cooking Light uh, online. Uh, the eight foods that are never worth um, saving for leftovers, and I agree, you did a great job because this is one of the things that we talked about in clickbait stuff in the last episode, and we've talked about in the past. There are lots of folks that are out there like, here are the ten foods that microbiologists won't eat, or here are the ten foods that you can never freeze. And um, you did a really good job in this, and I'm going to highlight something um, that is exactly it. Um, uh, as long quote as long as the food was promptly refrigerated and its time in the refrigerator was not excessive and the food was properly reheated any food would be safe to consume right like you blow it up right away here are the eight foods that are never worth saving for leftovers it's not a safety issue it just they might just not taste very good right and i think i think i had a profound impact on the reporter who who asked the question so 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 let me let me read to you um uh, and then we need to. We also, when we're finished with this, we also need to talk about uh, other non-safety food safety things, uh, namely Spotlight and how amazing it is and how much it sucks when it doesn't work on your computer. Ah, uh, um, yes. But um, so th- this is from um, uh, res- uh, for from assistant editor Z Kerstick. 
she has one vowel in her last name. Um, I'm assuming it's a she. Um, she says, um, so here are the, her questions, okay? Many shoppers know there are a few food items that one should always eat fresh, immediately serving after cooking at home, like mussels, for example. What other grocery staples or food items or groups would you say should not be eaten or saved in the fridge after preparing them? Do you have any tips for the average shopper on best practices to keep highly perishable food safe while transporting them? For example, buying prepackaged sushi at the supermarket or even taking leftovers leftovers from a restaurant back home. What are your guidelines for uh, or for a timeline for how long each food group can safely be stored in at home in the fridge, poultry, beef, seafood, shellfish, vegetables? What are some of the potential health complications that can arise from eating perishable food that has been cooked and kept in the fridge for too long? And so you can see from all of those questions, like there is a specific agenda that this right. person is looking to write this story, and I'm not going to help with that, right? No, I'm going to no. talk. I'm, what I am going to say, and and if you if you if you go to the article and you, and you and you search for my name as as I always do uh, <laughs> when I go to read an I article, I want to see what they said about me. Yeah. I have a Google I have a Google uh, alert for my name. Sure, um, uh, he says there's a few things you can do to prevent food spoilage, inclu- including keeping your car cool in the summer months. But his first tip for ha- handling delicate leftovers has to do with a common household household gadget you may already own. My tip is to purchase. A home fridge thermometer and check your fridge temperature in several spots regularly. For best safety and quality, the fridge temperature should be as cold as possible without freezing delicate items. And so, again, and then I go on to talk about Yersinia and Listeria because you know those are not controlled by the fridge and et cetera, et cetera. And then again, I made a, I made a plug, which I will make again for the the, the software uh, called Food Keeper, which again has limitations. But in a situation like this, where someone is looking for specific times for specific foods, I'm like, look. Just look at what FDA says. And again, we can talk about all the reasons why it's not perfect and it's not really based on safety and it's just based on you know opinion and blah, blah, blah. But but at least if, if you want a number, if you're the kind of person that wants a number, here, this number is as good as any of the other numbers. Go use this number from Food Keeper. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this is uh, – there's been a, a little bit of email banter um, going on. And I don't think you're involved in this one. Um, but it kind of goes along the same lines and I'll, I'm going to read a a sort of paraphrase a message that I got last night that I haven't had a chance to answer, which was, um, hi, um, one of our snap ed educators have asked if we have anything similar to the just food guidelines in the photos below, um, for guidance for food pantries on how long it is generally safe for them to keep products beyond the dates listed on a package. And it, it's a very similar question, right? Mm-hmm. But because what we're talking about here in leftovers is, okay, well, we, we've got a time and temperature um, issue. We, we know that there could be some listerial growth and, and it's it, it, the temperature of the refrigerator matters. This other question, which I started um, answering this morning before we, we started recording the podcast, is a lot more – um, about food quality than than food safety, and in a pantry situation, and we, we've talked a little bit about this in, in recent episodes. In a pantry situation, when we're talking about having food, I don't want to make a decision on quality for someone. I really, really don't, because if it's the difference between having nutrients that that have some oxidation and off flavors versus not having those nutrients, who am I to make that decision for someone? I will weigh in on safety issues, but for largely in in these in these um, you know in this type of question, uh, we're looking at spoilage, not um, you know not safety. And so, so I I mean I th- I think we're 
you you know you and I as we've talked about this we're really trying to push back on on these types of questions and being really wanting to parse out don't make this decision based on safety don't don't wrap this up i i don't think like the quick answer to this question is uh, if we give guidance to food pantries on how long it is safe for them to keep products beyond their dates listed on the package literally it is like forever for, for, <laughs> right? right like like it's not a so so that's quick that's an answer but but what that that's not the the answer that they're that they're looking for um but i think we're in i, I i'm really interested in this area on um uh, on dates, understanding dates, best before handling it, um, because over and over again it comes up with media questions, right? Like someone asked, and and this this I I was supposed to do um, uh, uh, a famous TV show this week, which I got bumped um, because I can't do it when they want me to. But you might know it rhymes with like um, mocked or cause. Uh, oh my god. Yeah, so so we I was supposed to do an interview with them tomorrow, and but they're quite so so. Here's the thing, right? Sounds um, it, it's a it's a show that I mean he's. he's Were they going to fly you to the the studio no, where Mocker Cause tapes? I was going to Skype to to no. Mocker Cause's computer. Um, so so I, I I there's lots of things that I don't agree with with him with him on. Um, he's been called in front of Congress for oh, yes. lying and promoting products. Like it's not a good it's not a good show. No. But, but, uh, if, if I could be a nugget of science and not Mm. a good show, is it, I think that's better than it being not a good show and me not having a nugget of science. Well, it's kind of like our earlier conversations about, would you join the Trump administration (laughs) as a food safety person? It's like, well, I could, I could try to do some good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so anyway, what did they want to talk to me about, Don? How long can pizza be left over on the counter? Oh, Jesus. Right, but so and, God and I, damn it, I got to publish that paper. Right, right, right. So, but the but but it's like and and so that's where it started. And then the producer and I talked on the phone for about twenty minutes, and then there it went almost immediately to. But how long can I keep milk in my refrigerator? And what's what does this best before date mean? And can I is it like if I eat yogurt after after the best before date, um, am I gonna die? Right, like but it's all the same questions. There. Well, the answer is yes. You're going to die, right. not because of the yogurt. Not <laughs> because everybody dies, Ben. Because everyone dies. Yeah, yeah. So, but that that this is. It, I mean, it's a very similar. These are all wrapped up into the same basket, right? Mm-hmm. Of um, not being able to often parse safety and quality. And there are times when I want those two, th- like where quality matters more than safety. And then there are times when quality doesn't matter at all. And when it comes to like having food and not having food, quality really isn't something I want to get in, involved in making the decision on someone's behalf, right? Like, and, and not knowing that the nuance of quality versus safety and the stuff that you and I just talked about for 10 minutes and how it's kind of a little bit like they, they are related to each other, but it's not the same thing. And we get them confused a lot. Well, we, and, and the yeah, world. Yeah, and and just to expand on this a little bit more. So my response to Z was, I've never heard that muscle should be immediately served immediately served after cooking after cooking at home. Is this supposedly for food safety? Well, she yeah, she doesn't. She just let me rephrase my question. Um, but then if you read the article, what she says yeah. in the article is fascinating. And so let's let's read from the article. I was vacationing in New England when I decided to put a clean plate put a sorry put a plate of linguine and freshly steamed mussels in a heavy cream 
green sauce, no less, into a doggy bag for lunch the next day. If you're anything like me, throwing out a plate of food really hurts your soul. Yes, I, yeah, I'm totally on the same page. See, I once took home um, a tiny little serving of, of plain rice from a, from a, a Vietnamese restaurant because I just didn't want to waste it. Um, but when I, and this is now back to Z, when I immediate, when I reheated it in one of my plastic lunch containers the next day, I immediately noticed that the taste, taste profile had been thrown way out of whack. Unwilling to give up, I powered through rubbery bites only to run to the bathroom throughout the rest of the afternoon. Okay. So there's a bunch of things going on there, which again, it's, it, so yes, um, Taste profile out of whack. Okay, don't know what's going on with that. Rubbery bites. Well, that's just simple quality, right? Like, right, like right. muscles um, are you know may taste like rubber when you first get them, and if you reheat them, for sure they're going to taste like rubber. But she ran to the bathroom throughout the rest of the afternoon. Now, the, my question for her is which end was it coming out of, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it matters. Because if you had diarrhea that afternoon. It's very unlikely that it came from the eating the muscles the next day. If you were vomiting, okay, I could imagine a scenario where emetic bacillus toxin was in the linguine or staph toxin was was in the linguine um, because of bacillus or staphylococcus, and and you and you put it into a doggy bag for lunch the next day, but you left it in your car all afternoon. You know, or your fridge was not at the right temperature, or something, right? So, so we really don't know without more details what caused her to become sick. And it's entirely possible that it wasn't the muscles at all. It was something that she ate twenty four, forty eight, seventy two hours before. Right, right, oh, yeah, and it's just equated to and and, um, and 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 yes, the muscles were terrible tasting, and the pro the flavor profile was way off, but. And those that was disgusting, but that's not what made you sick, right? Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, it's this is it's an so I think there's something like we we've talked a little bit about this uh, in the past, but I, I really would like to work with the the powers to be at um, at foodsafety.gov and USDA on Food Keeper, and let's let let's really try to parse some of this stuff out, right? Like, because that's ultimately, I think, if we did a lit, lit review of um, or a like a uh, content analysis, not a lit review, content analysis of where information of like storing leftovers and what to do is getting shared from, I think ultimately that becomes the source, right? So we're perpetuating this information out there, getting a lot of, um, a lot of spread, but it may not be the most science-based information when it comes to safety alone. And when you combine those two things together, we're making judgments for, for others on quality. Um, right. And so. well, and, and yeah, maybe one of the things that we could do while we're fixing food safety, food keeper, uh, uh, app here is like maybe a section on food safety versus food spoilage, right? Like somebody really sh- maybe should look at all of the content and say, okay, let's, let's parse out, let's see where we're making statements about safety and we're wrong. It's not really safety. And let's rephrase it in a way that we can talk about quality. Because yes, people still do. Pe- people still need advice on how long to keep something in their fridge, right? But it doesn't necessarily have to be about about food safety. So, and I know you have one more thing that you want to talk about. But before I do, I just want to say um, thanks um, to Apple for making all the wonderful things that they make, including Spotlight, which is a service for searching your Mac. Um, so I had a problem um, 
where my spotlight was broken um, and I it was causing me no end of frustration because I couldn't find things on my hard disk and uh, I couldn't find things in my email. Um, and then uh, I had to go search the email content on the web um, and, and, and I finally fixed it this week and I'm very, very excited about it. Um, so what is, yes, uh, so... We will link to a post uh, by Gene Mean Machine. <laughs> the G- okay. Um, uh, that says Mojave Upgrade has broken Spotlight Index for Mail.app. Well, not only did it, did it break Mail.app, it broke Spotlight for the whole computer. And the solution, uh, which comes from a person uh, who goes by the name AFS707, um, the problem is that there's an old plugin uh, called uh, TagsMail.md Importer uh, that causes uh, MD Worker to crash. And uh, there's a direction on the internet for how to fix that. So if you if your spotlight stopped working after you upgraded to Mojave, um, um, boy, uh, this is the solution. So 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 it, it is made. I, thanks, huge thanks to um, uh, um, uh, Gene Mean Machine and AFS seven hundred seven and uh, Matthias Knott, who apparently uh, originally posted about this um, on his blog about fixing the problem. So thanks to all of those people for. Um, um, letting me get so I could quickly find the email from the reporter who was asking about leftovers without going and searching on the web and I could look on my computer. So thanks. Awesome. 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 Um, Hey, so there's like scratching going on uh, that you might hear in the background. As I warned you earlier, there's, uh, there's scraping. Okay. So here's, here's my, here's my question. And I'm going to, I'm going to phrase this in the form of a tweet to FDA. Uh, <laughs> because that's how we communicate with them. Because that's how that's how we communicate. And I'll also shout out to FDA Food for like I they followed me last week, um, and I I don't know why I don't know why that is, um, and uh, they maybe they already follow you I don't know but this was like they don't only follow like four hundred people, hmm. so I I tweeted at FDA Food, um, thanks for the follow. <laughs> Do you have recommended safe endpoint temperatures for not raised to eat frozen vegetables when preparing them at home? I think it's somewhere between 135F, 165F, piping hot, and check the manufacturer's directions. <laughs> Asking for a friend. Um, and and there, this it, uh, I'll, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I'm not going to give you too much because some of it's like um, part of something that I'm doing. But um, asking for a friend really – I wanted to know – uh, if there was similar to what we have for, um, meats that, uh, USDA has a nice temperature chart that says, okay, cook all your, uh, poultry to 165, whether it's ground or whole, cook your muscle meats to 145. Like we can argue about the temperatures. I just wanted a starting point for something official that, that the, the powers that be at the federal government would say, you know what, for frozen vegetables, cook it to this. And this comes back to, um, an outbreak that happened uh, a couple of years ago that was linked, um, rightly or wrongly, and there's a lot of bad—not uh, bad. There's a lot of background to this, but CRF frozen foods, um, and uh, it was an outbreak um, that was. Uh, let me see when it was. I think it was 2016, um, and we'll link to this multi-state outbreak of listeriosis linked to frozen vegetables. Um, and this is kind of like in 
I'm asking this question because we're doing a project that has to do with this. Plus, I'm I'm speaking next week at AFI on um and on consumer food safety. And this seems like a pretty like it seems like a pretty simple question. And the thing is, it's not a simple question. There are um it, it's it's kind of hard to find. So this outbreak that happened in 2016 um, it was linked to to this product. Talks about um, people that got sick. Um, there were um, let's go through this nine cases in four states, three deaths, nine hospitalizations. So uh, pretty like not not a great not a, like uh, you know obviously not a great not a great um, uh, situation. If you go to and I will link to this. If you go to CDC's um, website. And said uh, they have uh, information and advice to consumers. What should I do? Well, in this case, they recommend not to eat recalled frozen food, frozen fruit and vegetables. Okay, that's a good one. Um, uh, the recalled products were sold in various packages. Instructions to find the use by date because um, the recall was linked to the use by date. Uh, they're found here. If I have the recalled products, what should I do? Um, throw them out. Um, blah, blah, blah. What they don't answer in anywhere here is what should I do to reduce my risk in frozen vegetables that aren't recalled, right? What, what is the magic? What's the magic number? And so I had, um, uh, one of my folks, um, try to find as much about this as possible. And so I've linked to, uh, or I, I put a document in our, um, in our notes and I'm going to run down what, what she found. Rachel McDowell found this, this all for me. So the question was, can you find cooking temperatures for frozen vegetables? Her response was general, a general search says there's not a recommended cook temperature for frozen vegetables. She found a serve safe cooking chart that says 135 for vegetables. She found a USDA cooking chart where vegetables or frozen vegetables are not mentioned. And, and I get, I get this. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. So USDA doesn't do a whole lot on talking about things that aren't things that they, um, uh, that they uh, regulate, except they do have fish and shellfish on their list and they do have eggs on their list. Right. So it's, so, so to, I, I think folks have, have sort of said, well, USDA doesn't don't, doesn't talk about temperatures that aren't things that aren't under their jurisdiction. Not not entirely true. They do have recommended um, temperatures. Um, and it's not just for catfish, right? So it's, for, you know, actual FDA-regulated um, foods. So go to foodsafety.gov. There's a nice chart. Frozen vegetables uh, are not mentioned. FDA, safe mi minimum cooking temperatures. Vegetables, frozen vegetables not mentioned. We can link to all of these things. Um, in the 2017 food code, it says plant food cooking for hot holding. Plant foods that are cooked for hot holding should be cooked to a temperature of 135. Um, Gordon food service chart, again, for retail, 145 for vegetables. Um, AFI doesn't have a specific temperature, um, cooking light. Now we get into the fun stuff, cooking light, the, the, um, publication that you, um, uh, did an interview for, uh, recently adding very good information states that frozen vegetables don't have to be cooked at all, um, or can be cooked minimally. So the nutrients aren't lost. Um, 
North Dakota State uh, North Dakota State University has a extension po- uh, publication that says frozen foods such as vegetables may be cooked directly to the recommended internal temperature. Um, what that is, we don't know. Um, CDC does not mention frozen vegetables um, in their minimum uh, food safety in the kitchen temperatures. Um, I, I we I've done a little bit of looking, and I, I will link to this um, from uh, Bird's Eye uh, Steam Fresh. So if we look to manufacturer's uh, instructions, you know, going down that route, um, it's a little bit all over the place. Um, I don't have any pictures of this, but I have seen as low as 145 and as high as 165 on manufacturer's directions. And Bird's Eye um, uh, has uh, um, a product here that I think was um, chef's favorite, steam fresh, and they say to cook to 160 uh, Fahrenheit. And this is uh, sauce, cauliflower, and broccoli. So, Don, <laughs> what I started with ben, was it's, you. ben, it's almost as if the experts don't know what the hell they're doing or what they're talking about. Well, or no one's really gotten together to figure it out, right? Well, like, the, like the, I, the, I, figure what out, though, because it really depends upon what the question is that you're asking. Yes. Right? And, and, and you can, and, the, but, but, you know, no one's figured it out, but boy, people do have a lot of answers. <laughs> they do. They do. Or, or they avoid it entirely right. or they don't have an answer. Right. So, right. Well, yeah. And that's the other thing is that they just, is no, no, no comment. Right. Right, right, right. So, so I do, I want to highlight something. I, w- I was a, little, a part of this and, and I think this has been put out there. Um, already, but I was part of um, a group of folks who who made some posters for retail around frozen vegetables as part of AFI, um, and it's how to handle and prepare your frozen produce. And so, it it does say about temperatures for hot holding and cold holding. Hot holding cook to 135, cold holding, cook to 165, and this comes out of the recommendations that are in the food code. So I read this as 135. Because I'm not going to hot hold in my home, right? I'm going to cook. I'm going to cook some frozen um, corn and I'm going to eat it. 135. If I follow what's in the food code as my background, would be the minimum. Would be the minimum temperature. Um, I so where where some of this came from is I was having conversations about this thing that we were making, and I that's what what I what I settled on was. I think the best available science, if we're looking for a really generic question of what temperature should I cook my vegetables to, 135 is what we what we would go on, and, and then there's some footing in the in the food code for this. And then I my caveat was, and I won't sort of call out the people or the or the agency that I was I was working with, but I then said, but I don't know if you're going to be comfortable with that temperature because I think you're overly conservative with other ones, and my guess is 165 is what you're going to come up with. And I, I, and I'm okay with that, right? Like I understand the, um, the, 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 this is a complicated issue on how we decide what these temperatures are, but, but I think there's a room for you and I and others to get together and do some work in trying to settle this. And, and I don't mean settle like let's, let's throw down and everybody get your science on the table and we're going to come up with one temperature. But I think what we do need is here's a science-based way to answer this question. And it was really, really difficult to find an answer to what I thought was a simple question. And I'm in this world. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, 
Yeah. And so what we need to start with is what, what data do we have? Right. And then let's start with, well, what are the, what are the answers that people are giving? Um, why might they be giving those answers? What are, and, but really fundamentally it comes down to what assumptions are you making? Right. Yes. Because, and, and I'm, so I'll talk for a little bit and then I'll explain how this recently all, all very, very similar issue came across my, my desk, um, with a consulting assignment actually last night. So the situation is that, um, okay, let's say we're going to come up with a safe cooking recommendation for frozen vegetables. Okay, what's the pathogen of concern, right? That's the first question we have to answer. Right, next, right. Qu- next question we have to answer is, all right, what, um, what, are, what are, are we going to do an integrated lethality or are we going to do an endpoint temperature, Right. And then, well, what is the, what for the path, and let's, let's say we can identify the pathogen of concern as listeria, because I think that's probably the, the correct, the correct answer, or the, the, the I, don't, I don't want to say correct, but that's a but, de- defensible yeah, answer, right? It's a starting point, starting for sure, point, right. based, based so, on, here's the only outbreak that we've identified so far with r- these products. Right. Um, um, and then, okay, so what is the food matrix, right? Because the inactivation kinetics are going to be different depending upon pH and water activity. Let's assume for the sake of discussion, it's really just about pH. So we're going to pick a neutral pH vegetable product. Okay. So what data do we have on D values and Z values for Listeria monocytogenase? Well, the good news is we, we've got those, right? That we have, we have inactivation kinetics for, for LM in, in, and, and in a variety of foods, including some that are probably relevant here. Or we can look at the world of D values and Z values and we can come up with what we think is the best best case um, or you know most, most reasonable case. Well now you have to ask the question so if we're not if we're if we're going to do an endpoint temperature that's one thing but is an endpoint temperature really realistic because honestly if you're boiling it's going to rise slowly and then it's going to cool slowly and if you're microwaving it's still going to rise relatively you know at a certain speed and then and then it's going to cool at a certain speed and so um, you know you've got all of this Information well, and I'll, built I'll, in, I'll, and then and then the other question is: so we got to make assumptions about what's the starting concentration of listeria prevalence and concentration, right? And then we got to make, and then oh boy, FDA is not going to be happy about this. We got to talk about listeria dose response, and they sure don't want to use the dose response that everybody else has used, right? And they so we got to make some assumptions about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, or one. So, yeah, um, and so the and 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 so that's so that's my initial reaction to the problem that you're proposing, and, I, and I'm 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 ready to to dig into this because I think it's an it's it's a, it would be a good and instructive um, discussion. Um, the the call I got was from a company that uh, was contacted by their supplier that their supplier had given them green beans that would potentially have been contaminated with listeria. And what this company wanted to know was, well, and what, what their supplier was asking them is, can, can you, the customer we sold our green beans to, can you tell us that your process is sufficient to control listeria? And the answer is, well, huh. probably. <laughs> Yeah. Um, depends on your assumption. Their process is variable. They don't know that they purchased any of these green beans. But again, this supplier is looking to do their due diligence for, I guess, FDA. And so the the company that contacted me is looking for information. And I, I did some work for them already um, with uh, Listeria, with green beans, right? And so I can, and, and, the, and what they did was they, that was a specific recall situation that they were looking to avoid. And so they had times and temperatures, like they've got a certain target process, and they've got times and temperatures. And but the but the but the question that they had for me as well, 
in the FDA um, hazard analysis and risk-based preventive controls for human food draft guidance for industry, draft guidance, note those two Mm -hmm. words, draft and guidance, in that document, it talks about for um, Listeria monocytogenes, it talks about um, a temperature of 158 for two minutes for a 60 process for Listeria monocytogenes. Well, if you go to FSIS um, and you look at 58 degrees in Appendix A, uh, which is for Salmonella, not for Listeria, it says instantaneous, zero seconds at 158. So now granted, those are different food matrices. One is meat and one is vegetables. One is Salmonella, one is Listeria. But I'm way more worried about Salmonella than I am about Listeria because right, right. aforementioned comments about dose response. But anyway, so I'm going to try to, after the podcast is is done and after I do my my uh, you know work on the podcast, that's my next uh, order of business is to work on drafting a letter for this company that's going to basically say, yeah, here's what we know about your process. Here's what we know about you know integrated lethalities from your process, considering come up time and cool down time, et cetera, et cetera. And here's you know why I think you know you need to be worried or not worried about listeria risk. So yeah, well, and this so this brings the, I'm, I'm glad you you shared that because it brings up another thought and conversation about um, about the consumer messaging around around these products is if if I'm like what I'm worried about is that and I that you you come up with a temperature if we're looking at endpoint temperature right not integrated lethality but if we come up with some blanket endpoint temperature that is too high that changes the quality of the product right like and 165 say if we pick that well the product doesn't need to be that high and 165 might change it might make my corn really really mushy and I want crunchier corn, whatever, whatever it is, right? Right. Well, because in many of these yeah. cases, the companies are cooking to, to a quality standard; they're not cooking yes. for safety. Yep. And that, so, 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 let's say that we, um, that we, that we say, okay, follow the manufacturer's directions, and let's make the manufacturers validate their directions. And Afi has, uh, I think, an ability to uh, provide a bunch of leadership in that area for their members. But what about? My little friend who wants to just you know grow some corn in their backyard and freeze it, and and wants to sell you know you know sixty kilograms a year of it or whatever it is a small really small producer that's not going to be probably part of the 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 industry standard and I and now I'm saying hey follow the manufacturer's directions and they're just like making it up right like they're not they they don't they're not going through a validated cooking process to uh to, to actually come up with whatever that, that like if we're looking at integrated lethality and say okay if you do it for this amount of time and you get to 135 then we're good they're not doing the ba- the background science and i don't think it's expect like it's realistic to expect them to do it um in you know in 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 the same way that we that we say if you're making frozen um, pot pies, pot pies, um, that you would do a, uh, a valid, you know, that you're required to do validated cooking instructions, but we, we're not even at that place right now. Right. Like, so, so I think that without an endpoint and, and pushing it onto the industry, I think that works for 99% of the product, but it leaves this, this small little risk area that if it's not there, well, what's the number that we say, if it's not there, then we'll go to 165. I don't know. Uh, so I don't think there's an answer t- to this. It was frustrating to not be able to get a quick, uh, like a quick answer from anywhere. And, and me, and what was most frustrating is that I didn't know it. 
<laughs> right? Like I just didn't even know what to, where, where to go. And I knew the other ones were out there. And then it made me think, you know what, we should probably figure this out. We should, we were, we're close enough to, um, the frozen food industry as being part of their, um, you know, scientific advisory board. Um, and we have great friends in that, in that area that we should help and work with the, the folks at, at the agencies to come up with what, what this is. And I think it's going to be a struggle and a, and a fight and it'll be, it'll be fun. Well, see, this is why I send people to Food Keeper, and I would uh, my answer would be, well, what does Food Keeper say about cooking leftovers? Right. And that's why you should just tell people until we get this figured out. Yeah. So, oh, speaking of reheating stuff, um, and you'll appreciate this um, because the, the, we we're in the middle of doing what I call the the Ben Chapman Memorial Research Project, uh, which is microwaving frozen berries in Yay. my lab, and and I've, I've been having some good discussions with my student Robin, who's working on this, um, and. Um, uh, one of the things that she shared with me and it was like, Oh my God, this is an opportunity. Like, like we, so we've been having some trouble, um, with microwaving frozen berries because the thermocouples don't stay in the berries once they become unfrozen. Right. And so, um, I'm like, well, what, well, how could we extend this project and still do something meaningful? And we, we got a bunch of different ideas, but one of the ideas which she shared with me was, or what, which we, we got into discussions about was what are the cooking directions on the package say for reheating oh. frozen berries? And I don't know if you're going to believe this or not, Ben, but every single package we checked do you think that they told us the same thing or do you think they no, told I, us something different? Totally different. They're totally all different. totally different. You know what was missing from virtually every bit of cooking directions? The serving size. Oh, so it's like heat heat in the microwave until thawed, right? Well, or he, heat, heat, yeah. heat for two minutes at 50% power. Unknown quantity of berries. I don't know if you know how microwaves work, Ben, but the amount of berries you put in the microwave matters. It, I, I, right. I, I mean, it's so, so this is this, the directions are just, I mean, and of course, the directions are there not for safety, they're there for quality. And we're, we're looking at bacteriophage MS2, which is a surrogate for norovirus, which is found in frozen berries. But, um, but the directions are just all over the place. So we're, so anyway, so, so this is, this is something that is from a couple of different perspectives, as obviously come across my desk. The Listeria uh, consulting phone call last night, the ongoing graduate research with frozen berries. I mean, this is, this is an area that is ripe for, uh, improvement for sure. Oh, well, Hey, so can I get a request put a request to you and Robin? Sure. Could you, could you send me like pictures or anything that you have on that? And I'll, I'm going to, could I use that in my, in my talk next week at, at Daffy and make, uh, you know, give, give credit, all credit where credit's due to the two of you for that. Cause I think that's an interesting discussion, right? Like this, I, I, I don't, I think it's the same for berries as it is for vegetables. And we, we don't look at them as not ready to ready in the same way, but I would like to, I'd like to use that as an example as I try to put this story together. Sir, what would you like from her? I'd like, do, are there, do you have pictures of the, uh, cooking instructions that it, uh, and the, like just a handful of them Yeah, I, from, I, 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 or, or the yeah. instructions themselves. Either I, one. I could. I could. I'll. I'll, I'll put you an email. Touch. I, for sure, we have pictures of berries and thermocouples and and microwaves because um, yes. I've seen those. Um, but but I will. I will see what she's got. I, I I told her to capture it, so she's probably got it in some form or another. So I, I'll put you guys an email. Touch. Awesome and perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And good job. And Rob, this is Robin Miranda, right? Yes. Who, who is uh, also known as uh, the uh, uh, five-second uh, rule guru along yes, with you. Exactly. Yeah. 
Cool, cool, cool. Good. Awesome. Um, so anyway, that was, I, I really, um, I, the, this, this, you know, this question came up. I really wanted to get your, your take on it. I think we, we did that, um, expertly. Um, and, uh, that's all I, that's all I had on my list this week. Well, good. Well, I'm finally, I'm glad we finally got to your question. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks. First time caller, uh, long time listener. Uh, could you, could you help me with the uh, listeria in, uh, cooking temperatures and frozen vegetables? Thank you. I'll, I'll just sit I'll, I'm going to hang up and listen. <laughs> Could you uh, call me a, a, a deep temperature? Oh, <laughs> uh, anyway. All right. Well, Don, um, as always, I, uh, I look forward to our conversations every week or two weeks when we do this and, uh, it keeps me, uh, keeps me motivated to keep on, uh, doing the world of food safety. Um, yeah. not that I n- need that motivation. It just makes me even more excited to go do it. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of doing food safety, um, the l- listeners of the podcast probably don't know this, but we changed the recording time because you have to go uh, teach, uh, about food safety for the Dean, for the Dean. I gotta, I gotta go to the Dean's class, uh, so- which is a, yeah, I understand why you're teaching for the dean because he's a busy man. What I don't understand is why he has a class. He's a dean. He's got a whole college to run. He does. He is. So this is a very cool class. I um, I don't know what the the call numbers are the class for, but it's like you know CALS or ALS something three seventy one. It's a three hundred level course, and it's a class that he teaches uh, once a year with uh, co teaches with our commissioner of agriculture. Uh, Steve Troxler, who is also located here in Raleigh. And so once a week, they, they are here teaching a class on North Carolina agricultural issues. Um, and as an under, if I was an undergrad, I would have loved to take this class. Like it is uh, one of those like uh, gen- general classes, but you get a lot of in-depth uh, like, you know, the dean calls, you're going to go show up, right? Like you get all the right people. As <laughs> yeah. Lectures. Yeah. So, so that's what I'm, what I'm doing. I got a, I got a call, uh, to go talk today about FISMA and food safety burden. And it's, I've, I think I've spoken in this class, oh, four or five times, uh, over the last six or so years. Um, and it's cool. It's like really, really keen students who are all over agricultural issues and, and, um, it's it's fun to parachute in and talk about food safety because it's you know it, it's a slice that, that I think the dean touch touches on because um, uh, um, the dean uh, who I, we've referred to a bunch of times uh, Rich Linton who's a former food safety extension specialist from Purdue and uh, the Ohio State University and Brief, uh, briefly department chair at Ohio State br- yeah briefly briefly um, and then has, has now been here for uh, seven years maybe um, oh really and, that long oh wow yeah yeah he's six or seven years. He completed his five year review last year. So, um, and you guys are keeping him around. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's a great, um, great colleague, great mentor. Um, I, I am lucky that I, I get to spend time with him, uh, in, you know, in other, other ways he's, he does a, because he knows the world that I'm in, he's always been such a champion, uh, for the things that I'm, I'm interested in. And then he invites me in to do stuff like this, which is always a cool, um, cool thing. So yeah, I have to head over to, to real campus, to a real classroom and talk to some undergrads, which I don't usually do. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for moving our, our start time so I can get over there. No um, so yeah, this was food safety talk, a uh, one seventy six. Um, I know it's, it's, it's exhausting. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, all right. I'll talk to you soon, Don. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
cool. Yeah. Okie dokie. So this one is yours. Yep. Um, and I think I've sent you, so I sent you all the, the links in a word document Oh, for all of the, like a serve safe cooking charts. It's in a word document called cooking temperatures for frozen vegetables. So I don't know if you want to just like click on a bunch of those and then have them, you don't have to do all of them, but all the ones I ran down are okay. in that, that word doc in it's in the podcast. Uh, it's in the podcast folder. Okay. Yeah. It should be, I am now sinking and it's up to date. So cool. Yep. Oh, cooking temperature for frozen. Bed. I see it. Yep. 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 Yeah. Um, and then anything else we talked about, I think was, was in there. I, and then I also sent you a link to just a, uh, you'll see this in your text, um, a picture of bird's eye. <laughs> okay. So it's, so it's like, cause I couldn't, we actually couldn't find anything on anybody's website about what the recommended cooking temperatures or cooking instructions were for frozen vegetables. Like bird's eye doesn't have this on their website. So someone like took a picture and put it at some. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I clicked, I clicked those links as they came in. So I've got those, so, but I didn't, I didn't get the, the, the stuff in the word document. I'll, I'll link to all of them. What the heck it's cool. in the internet, right? Yeah. We, we won't run out of space. Yeah. Um, well, and some cool. people, some people uh, don't listen. They just look, read the show notes. So that's right. Some people just read the show notes, and I'm okay with that. Me too. Um, okay, so two weeks from now, are you? Did you ever get information about the Consumer Food Safety Education Conference? Like, are you? I'm flying in and flying out. Same day? Uh, no, no. Next. Okay. Week. Well, I'll be there at some that, and your talk is it on Friday. Friday. Okay. So I may see you Thursday night or Friday morning. I okay. now know I've got to be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania and to, um, go to a hockey tournament on Friday. We don't know what time we're playing, but I think we have to play Friday night. So I'm going to fly out of Orlando Friday morning. So I'll be there. Okay. But Thir- I'm, but I'm, I'm not flying in until. Oh, well, so, all right. So we, if we, if we, if we, if we want to hang out, we can hang out uh, Thursday night. Yeah. yeah, Cause, you, yeah. When he, Cause you're, you're, you're there on Thursday. I'm there. I, yeah. As of right now, I haven't booked my flight yet. Oh, of course you haven't. Well, cause I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if I was coming back ah. to Raleigh or not. It's Oh, so you're yeah. flying, you're flying to Lancaster. Yeah. And then someone, someone's Sam. driving Sam Oof. to that tournament and then I'm driving back with them. Okay. Yeah. Um, and my, and then that is it. That is the last, uh, thing that I do for hockey this season. Wow. That's, that's the <laughs> end. Yep. 50, we counted up, um, uh, Jack had 56 practices and, and so far 50 games. Um, and Sam is like somewhere around 70 total ice times. Wow. Yeah. So, all right. So, so when do you want to do this again? So what do you think about the fifth or the fourth? Um, fourth in the afternoon is, is really good. Perfect. Yeah, um, let's do it. And that gives us, so then we're not the same thing as last time. So I'd rather do it then than the 11th. Um, so what if we did two to four Yep, on the fourth? Perfect. And then with the goal of people who are going to come to this conference, who might be listeners, us having an actual, uh, episode ready. Oh, before the, uh, yeah, it'll be out. Yeah. Get on the plane to listen to it. Cool. I heard that. I heard that. They're already, they're knocking down my door to get, they want to know where's that episode. Uh, (laughs) When? So that'll be 177. And what did I say? Two to P. Two to four. Two to four. Okay. Perfect. Um, 
on. Here we go. Yes. Perfect. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I will uh, talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.